Good morning, church. So this year, we've been going through a Bible reading plan as a church that's going to take us through the story of the Bible over the course of the year. And we've started out the Bible reading schedule looking at Psalm 119, talking all about God's Word and how powerful and amazing it is in our lives. And we've taken the first few uh, weeks of sermons this year to look at some foundational issues, like what is the Bible? We saw that the Bible is the Word of God. It, because it's the Word of God, it's the key to joy and to seeing God's heart and to seeing Jesus. And then we looked at how do we read the Bible. We saw that we read the Bible like any other book because we use the basic skills of reading when we read it, but we also read the Bible unlike most other books because we seek to be formed or transformed by it, not just to get information from it. Which brings us to an important question. How does the Bible do its job? How does the Bible form us? Does something magical happen simply because we sit down and look at the words on the page? Or is there something more to it? Something more to the way that it transforms us? And that's what we're going to look at today. So today we'll be looking at Psalm chapter 119, verses 105 through 112, and 129 through 136. And we'll see that the Bible invites us to live in its story. The Bible invites us to live in its story. We'll see what the Bible does, look at being formed by God's word, and then talk about living in God's story. But let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you invite us to, to be transformed by it. Thank you that you care about us and that you've given us your word. And we pray that you would guide us today, help us to know you more clearly through your word. And in Jesus' name, amen. So first, what the Bible does. As you look through today's passage, you'll see a number of things that the Bible does in the life of the writer of Psalm 119. Let's look at a few of them. First, verse 105, which, by the way, that's our memory verse for this week. So if you've memorized it, I invite you to just say it along with me from home. It says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. So what does that tell us the Bible does? It guides us. You know, I like to run and hike. Sometimes if I have a busy day, I'll go out for a run at nighttime when it's dark. And when I'm out running at night, I need to carry a light with me so I can see where I'm going and I don't sprain an ankle by stepping in the wrong place. And the writer is saying, God's word is to our lives what that light is to my run. It guides us, it shows us the safe and the right way to go. But that's not all it does. Look at verse 107. I'm severely afflicted. Give me life, O Lord, according to your word. God's word gives us life. He's saying it's as, it's as vital to us as air or water. Or verse 111, your testimonies are my heritage forever, for they are the joy of my heart. God's word gives us joy. Or look at verse 130. The unfolding of your word gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. You know, when I read this verse, I have this picture in my mind of like a dark room. And there's this light bulb shining in the room, but it's covered with a tear-proof paper that's folded into a really intricate origami pattern around it. So no light can get out. You know origami, the folded art? You see my beautiful butterfly right here? Folded paper to make art. Imagine that made of tear-proof paper folded around this light bulb so no light can get out. If you want light from the bulb to get into the room, you need to carefully unfold the origami shape. And each time you unfold a little bit more, 
more light comes out into the room and you're able to more clearly see and understand the room that you're in. The writer is saying God's word works like that to give us understanding. As we work to unfold it and understand what it's saying, it illuminates our lives and it shows us more about God and more about the world and more about ourselves. Or verse 132, turn to me and be gracious to me as is your way with those who love your name. The Bible shows us God's graciousness. It tells us of God's character, that he's a God who delights to bless us and to do good to us. Or verse 133, keep steady my steps according to your promise and let no iniquity get dominion over me. The Bible gives us God's promises, his promises that are for our good and and he guides us in the way that's the best way to live. And if you read through the rest of Psalm 119, you'll see way more, even more examples of things the Bible does in this writer's life. This is just a small sample. And as I read through even just this small list that we just looked at, I don't know about you, but the things the Bible does in this man's life are things that I want in my life. I want guidance and life and joy and understanding and to know God's character and his promises for me. If I think about what the good life looks like, these are a lot of things that I would list as part of it. And my guess is that if I were to ask you, is this your experience of the Bible, that it gives you all these things? Some of you would probably say, yeah, that that sounds like what happens when I read the Bible. I love reading God's word. I feel like every time I sit down and read it, he, he just speaks to me. And some people would probably say, That sounds nothing like my experience reading the Bible. You know, I've tried it before. Maybe it was interesting, but it wasn't life-changing like this guy is talking about. And if that's you, if this list has no resemblance to your experience reading the Bible, what do you do when the Bible makes these types of claims about itself? Do you assume the Bible is lying and these things aren't true? If so, you're probably going to end up quite disillusioned and hardened whenever someone claims to get these things from the Bible. Or maybe you assume the Bible does offer these things, but not to everyone and especially not to me. I've been recently reading the autobiography of Malcolm X, and in the book he shares about a man named Mr. Muhammad. Mr. Muhammad ran the mosque where Malcolm X was converted to Islam. And this is what Malcolm X says. He says, Mr. Muhammad told me as a boy, he felt the Bible's words were a locked door that could be unlocked if only he knew how. And he cried because of his frustrated anxiety to receive understanding. Have you ever tried to read the Bible and felt like Mr. Muhammad? Like you know the Bible has something amazing to give you, but you just lack the ability to unlock it? Or maybe when you try to read the Bible and you just don't get this experience from it, maybe you realize the problem could be with me in the way that I'm reading it. And maybe there are steps that I could take to, to learn how to read it properly. I mean, think about it. If the Bible is true, it's written by an all-knowing, all-powerful God, and it's powerful enough to accomplish everything it's supposed to accomplish. So if Psalm 119 says the Bible does all these amazing things, but you're reading the Bible and not experiencing these things, The problem isn't with the Bible, it's with the way you're reading the Bible. 
And to clarify, I'm not saying that if you read the Bible properly, you're going to just have this constant state of happiness and freedom from all trouble. No, we're, we're sinful human beings who live in a sinful and broken world. We're going to experience hurt and pain. But in those, even in those moments of hurt and pain, is going to the Bible something that makes the pain worse by just feeling like more empty promises? Or is it something that just leaves you as you are? Or is it something that leads to healing and hope in the midst of the pain? And so if we want to experience healing and hope and joy from God's word, how do we have to read it to get those things out of it? And that brings us to formed by God's word. What, what does it take to be formed by God's word? We mentioned last week that good literature is written to form us as human beings. Good novels are written for this purpose. A good novel is aimed at giving you a new perspective on the world. And as you gain this new perspective, you can make decisions differently and act differently. And we said last week, the Bible is also written to form us, but on an even deeper level than a novel. Because with a novel, you can understand what it's saying, disagree with it, and still get the point. But with the Bible, you don't truly understand what it's saying until you're seeking to obey it and live out its teaching in your life. And today, I want to dig a little deeper into that question, how does literature, and specifically the Bible, form us? How does the Bible help us see the world differently and live differently? And there are a couple ways that it does this. One is that it invites us to view life from inside the story. As we read the Bible, we live out different situations in practice. Karen Swallow Pryor, a literature professor, she says, literature embodies virtue. It teaches us the good way to live. First, by offering images of virtue in action. And second, by offering the reader vicarious practice in exercising virtue, which is not the same as actual practice, of course, but is nonetheless a practice of, by which habits of mind, ways of thinking and perceiving accrue. Basically, we, we see what it looks like to live a certain way. We practice decision-making in hypothetical situations. And as we do this, we have a safe distance from being hurt or hurting others if we make the wrong decision. But as we practice that and we learn how to make good decisions, we then get better at making them in the real world. So take an example from the Bible. The night Jesus was arrested, Peter is asked three times, do you know him? Are you with him? Are you part of his group? And all three times, Peter lies and says, I've never met Jesus before in my life. And it's really easy for us, 2,000 years removed from the situation, to shake our fingers at Peter and say, that was a bad thing to do. But what if we put ourselves in the situation, in the story, and pretend to be Peter? Like, how would you respond if those people asked you if you were with Jesus? And before you automatically say, I'd say yes, because it's the right thing to do. Remember. Jesus is about to be killed. Peter thinks that if they know he's with Jesus, there's a good chance he will be killed too. The resurrection hasn't happened yet, so Peter doesn't have the assurance we do of Jesus' identity as God or the Christian future hope. So let me ask you, would you tell the truth to those people if you knew the truth could get you killed? And when we see it that way, my guess is a lot of us would say, no, just like Peter did. But then, as we read the story, we can see how that decision ends for Peter. It ends with shame and regret. Living with shame and regret, it's a miserable way to live. 
So clearly we don't want to follow in Peter's footsteps there, right? So, so we want to be the type of people who would say yes, despite the consequences that we do know Jesus, that we are with Jesus. But then we think about our normal day-to-day lives. How much fear or pressure does it actually take to keep us from owning up to our faith in our day-to-day life? What are the situations where you feel a desire to hide from the fact that you trust in Jesus? It probably takes far less than it did for Peter to deny his faith. So by putting ourselves in Peter's shoes and reading this story over and over and asking ourselves, what would it take for me to tell the truth here? And practicing again and again, telling the truth despite the consequences in this hypothetical scenario, we're actually training ourselves so that in our real lives, when we're tempted to deny Jesus, we can be honest about our faith instead. We can learn from what happened to Peter and grow in our real life decision-making as a result of it. Putting ourselves in the story trains us so when we need to make choices in real life, we're prepared for it. And we can do that with good examples following their good footsteps or bad examples following their bad footsteps and then learning how to correct those mistakes by trusting God more deeply and, and learning to apply his promises to our lives. So that's one way literature forms us. But that's not the only way that literature and the Bible forms us. It also aims to reshape our desires by reshaping our picture of the good life. Karen Swallow Pryor again, she says, the stories in which we are immersed project onto our imaginations visions of the good life as well as the means of obtaining it. As we read a story, we get a picture of what the good life looks like, and we get a picture of how to get that good life. And the stories we fill our minds with shape what we believe is the good life. Think about the images of the good life that are thrown at us every single day. Here's a silly example, right? You walk through CityGate right now, you walk past all the stores. Each store is trying to convince you that buying their products is the ultimate key to unlocking the good life. I don't know if you walked past the coach store recently, but I was walking past the other day. They had a video playing on their video screen that implies people who buy and wear their perfume get to own their own islands. Doesn't that sound awesome? Buy our perfume, own your own private island. Now, that's clearly false before you get excited and run to the coach store to buy their perfume. Buying coach perfume will not help you own a private island. But look what Coach is doing. They're telling you a story. The story gives you a picture of the good life, you know, the life where you own your own private island. And then they invite you to imagine yourself in that life. And then they tell you that buying their perfume is part of the key to you getting that life. The perfume isn't just something that helps you smell better. It's your key to the good life because maybe smelling better will get you the job that will give you the money that can help you afford to buy your own private island and that's the life that you want. They hope that by inviting you to consider their version of the good life, you'll transform your actions by buying their product. And we're constantly being exposed to different pictures of the good life and being invited to pursue them. And with each new picture we're exposed to, whether it's from conversations with friends or the news or commercials or books or movies or TV shows or wherever, each new picture of the good life that we're exposed to teaches us to see the world a certain way by viewing the world through the lens of that supposed good life. 
it invites us to put ourselves inside the story and see life through the lens that the story invites us to use. And the way we see the world, the way we understand the good life, shapes the way we live in the world. And the Bible does this too. The Bible shapes us and forms us by giving us an alternative picture of the good life, actually a better picture than anything the world can offer us, and inviting us to live inside that story instead of the world's cheap substitutes. So the Bible forms and transforms us by inviting us to live in a better story. And what is the story that the Bible invites us to live inside? Well, it's God's story. So let's look at living in God's story. How many of you know what the Bible presents as the good life? And you don't have to put your hands up for this, but just think to yourself, how many of you think the Bible's version of the good life is boring or unfulfilling? Now, before I start telling you about the Bible story, let me just clarify. If you think the Bible's version of the good life is boring or unfulfilling, it's a sign that you haven't actually understood it properly yet. So listen up. Because part of what we're doing as we read the Bible is allowing ourselves to see life through the Bible's interpretation of the good life. And if we're going to understand the, the life that the Bible is inviting us into, we need to understand the Bible's story. If we don't understand the Bible's overall story, we won't be able to properly place ourselves in that story as we read through it. And since our Bible reading plan starts with Genesis 1 tomorrow, anyone else looking forward to that? I am. I'm going to use the rest of today's sermon to give us an overview of the Bible story. And this is for a couple reasons. First, so as we read through the story this year, we have a general sense of orientation and an idea of where in the story we are, where the story is going. And also so that we have a clearer understanding of the good life that the Bible is inviting us into and how each different passage points us towards that good life. And as I go through this overview, I realize it's going to be very brief, but don't worry because we're going to spend the rest of the year unpacking this and digging more deeply into it. Okay? So where does the Bible's story start? Scene one of the story of the Bible is creation. God makes everything and he makes it good. Scene one, creation. God makes everything, he makes it good. He makes a beautiful garden. He places a man and a woman named Adam and Eve in that garden to rule over it. And according to the Bible, the life that the man and the woman had in the garden is the good life. It's the way things are supposed to be. Like life in the garden, it was so different than life today. Think about it, there was no sin, no hiding, no shame, no fear of being hurt by others, no barriers in relationships with each other or with God. There was perfect peace and contentment. Doesn't that sound like the good life? And maybe you're like, ah, you know, that all sounds good, but wouldn't it be a bit boring just sitting around all day? Well, no, because there's work there, but the work there doesn't involve all the toil that we experience in our jobs today. Imagine a job where you can go, contribute, accomplish something, have a, a good sense of productivity, but with no interpersonal issues, nothing going wrong, nothing breaking at the last minute, no people you're relying on letting you down, no people using or abusing you to get themselves ahead. 
A job where you can come home at the end of every day knowing the work you did was important and made a difference and feeling that good kind of tired where you still have energy to hang out with your family but you're not restless from being unproductive and unfulfilled. Don't you wish you could work at a job like that? That's all part of the Bible's picture of the good life that we were created for. And best of all, God was there. There were no barriers in a relationship between humans and God. God would come and walk with the man and the woman and talk with them in the garden. Like, you know how frustrating it is when you try to pray and you're praying into silence and it feels like you're talking to a wall and you're like, God, are you even there? They never had to deal with that because God would come and be physically with them in the garden. And that's the ultimate ingredient of the Bible's picture of the good life, the presence and friendship of God. I want that type of life. You know, the Bible tells us our anxiety and fear and malaise and discouragement and sadness in life, they come from the fact that we were created for this life and we can't have it right now. And so before we move on and look at why we can't have that life right now, let me ask you, how would your life be different if you believe that this and not any of the world's alternatives is the good life you were created for? How would your goals in life be reshaped? How would your decision-making on a day-to-day basis run through a different set of criteria? I think if we really got into the Bible's story in such a way that we can see our lives through the lens of that story, we'd live differently. And I realize, obviously, the world I'm describing isn't the world we live in today. So what happened? Well, let's look at scene two of the Bible story. Scene two, the fall. Scene one, creation. Scene two, the fall. So things are going great in the garden. And one day, Satan, in the form of a serpent, comes and tempts Adam and Eve. He tells them to do something that seems quite harmless to us, to eat a fruit. But under the surface, it wasn't really about eating a fruit. See, God had given Adam and Eve one command. Don't eat the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. All the fruit from all the other trees in all the entire garden was fair game, just not this one. And God had told Adam and Eve, the day you eat from this tree, you will die. And Satan comes and he tells Adam and Eve, God is not looking out for your good. God is not trying to protect you. God is holding out on you because he's jealous of you and he does not want you to achieve your full potential. So Adam and Eve, they decide to eat the fruit, but they're not really just making a decision to eat a fruit. They're answering the question, will I trust that God is good and honest and fair and let him have control in my life? Will I believe that the good life is found through trusting him or will I reach out and take control for myself, put myself in God's place and seek the good life through my decisions and my wisdom? And they chose not to trust God and instead put themselves in God's place. It's the worst kind of rebellion they were capable of committing. And when they do this, they're able to know good and evil But because they've now rebelled against God, they know that they have done evil. So they hide. They hide from God. They hide from one another. They make clothes to cover their nakedness. And even before God shows up on the scene to give them consequences for their rebellion, we can see how the original goodness of the world is broken. Shame and fear and hiding have replaced transparency and love 
and trust. And then God comes and gives them more consequences like toil and work. Which is why even if you have the best job in the world today, there are still days where it sucks. And God says there's going to be division in relationships, which is why you fight with your spouse. Or if you're single, it's why it's so hard to find a spouse in the first place. He says there's going to be pain in childbirth. And woman, don't you all just want to punch Eve in the face for that one? And then God says there's going to be banishment from his presence. And as bad as all the other consequences were, this one's the worst of all. Because humanity is created to find life and meaning and purpose and joy through a relationship with God. And we've now cut ourselves off from that relationship and there's nothing we can do through our power to get it back. And let me just point out at this point how different this is from the world story. You know, the world says your deepest issues in life are the result of the people around you doing wrong things. And the good life is found through fixing what they do. And that's why we've had such violence and rioting in Washington, D.C. this week. Because a bunch of people are angry because they believe the people around them are doing bad things that are ruining the world. But the Bible tells us a different story. The Bible says your deepest problem isn't your circumstances. It's not the people around you. It's your own heart. Your deepest problem in life isn't that you've been hurt or that you've been treated wrong. And yes, pain from being treated badly is real, but it's not your deepest problem. According to the Bible, your deepest problem in life is that you're a rebel against God. So how would your life be different if you truly believed your deepest source of trouble and sadness in life comes from your own rebellion against God, not from your circumstances or the way other people treat you? When we look at our circumstances and the people around us as the source of our problems, it leads to hatred and division and violence. But when we realize our deepest problem lives inside us, it gives us humility. Because even when people around us do wrong things, we realize my own heart is full of rebellion against God and that's my deepest problem. And I know if our rebellion and our own hearts are the core of our problem, won't that lead to despair? Well, no, because the rest of the story of the Bible is written to answer this question, how do we get back to that relationship with God that we were created for, to that good life that we were made to have. And scene three shows us how we can have hope despite our brokenness. So scene one, creation. Scene two, the fall. Scene three, redemption. The answer to the question of how we get back to God starts with a man named Abraham. God appears to Abraham. He makes promises to Abraham. He says, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless all the families of the earth through you. God makes a great nation out of Abraham, the nation of Israel. And the rest of the Old Testament follows the story of this nation. And they make some major progress in the journey back to God's presence. They're, they're given God's law so they can know how to live as God's people. They're given the temple, the building where God lives among humanity. But Israel fails, just like Adam and Eve. They rebel against God's law. The temple, that building where God's presence lives among them, it's destroyed and they are dragged off into captivity. And hundreds of years go by, waiting and waiting, till one day a baby is born. And this baby is God in human flesh, 
Jesus. God has come to be with us once again. He comes to earth and rather than being this majestic, triumphant king that people are expecting, he's a humble teacher. And he says some things that bother the religious leaders of his day and they kill him. But his death is the undoing of Adam's sin. See, Adam and Eve made a decision to trust themselves rather than God's word when God's word offered them life. Jesus makes the decision to trust God even when that trust will lead to death. And he does this so that we who failed to trust God, who deserve death, can have life instead. He pays the debt of death that our sin and rebellion deserve. And Jesus rose from the dead, proving once and for all that his victory over sin was completed and that death will not have the final word in the universe. His resurrection is the ultimate guarantee that the good life, the life we were created for but forfeited through our rebellion, isn't lost forever. God will bring it back. Our future will be beautiful and glorious. And after his resurrection, Jesus ascended to heaven. When he did this, he sent the Holy Spirit, God who lives inside us, to the earth. The Holy Spirit guides us as we seek to live for him in our world today. And Jesus has promised to return one day to make all things new and inaugurate this glorious, beautiful future that he's purchased for us. But until then, each of us who trust in him is now called to be his ambassador, to bring the presence and love of God into our day-to-day relationships and interactions. And Jesus says that if we trust in him, eternal life for us starts not when we die, but right now. We're invited to live in this new reality of his kingdom today here on the earth. We're invited and commanded to bring the good news of our king to the world around us and to show them and tell them about how amazing he is. That's why God left us here on earth and didn't just take us straight to heaven the moment we became Christians. Because he wants us to invite others into this good life that he is giving to us. So how would your life be different? If you truly believed that you're here not just for your own comfort and pleasure, but to be an ambassador for Christ to the world around you, how would your life be different if you truly believed that the good life is found in serving others, not just living for yourself? How would you approach relationships differently? How would you approach your job differently? My guess is that this perspective would fill our often mundane and everyday lives with meaning and purpose and hope and joy that that many of us don't experience right now. And there's one more scene of the Bible story. So we have scene one, creation, scene two, the fall, scene three, redemption, scene four, restoration. The Bible tells us one day Jesus will come again. He will right all the wrongs in the world. He will rule forever with justice. He will punish those who rebelled against his rule, but reward those who love him and trust in him and are transformed into his image because of that love and trust. He's going to make all things new. He's going to make heaven and earth new. He's going to purify what's broken and dead. He's going to give us a beautiful new home where we as his resurrected people will live with him forever. See, the Christian hope isn't that we will float on clouds and play harp someday. The Christian hope is that just as Jesus was raised from the dead to a new life, we will be raised from the dead to live with him forever. And we will live with Jesus in a place where he will wipe every tear from our eyes. All sad things will come untrue. The good life that we were created for, that life of perfect relationships, no hiding, 
no shame, no fear, perfect fulfillment and purpose, that will be ours forever. So how would your hope in life be different? How would it be stronger? If you constantly kept this future reality before your eyes, reminding yourself that because God's in control, joy, not despair, will always have the last word in your life. Not just in the world in general, but in your life. Joy, not despair, will always have the last word. How much day-to-day discouragement would lose its power over you if you really believed that was your future? How much easier would it be to let go of anger and bitterness if you truly believed God was preparing this for you in the future? So church, the Bible is seeking to transform us by showing us the truest and most beautiful story that ever was. The story of God and his work in our world. And as it tells us the story, it invites us to see ourselves in the story and it invites us to be transformed as we gain a new perspective on life and the good life through this story. You know, it's not easy. This week you're going to face temptation. You're going to hear competing stories of the good life. You're going to face discouragement. And your ability to respond properly in the face of these things, it's going to be determined by how clearly you see where you belong in God's story. And it's going to be determined by how deeply you believe God's story is the true good life. The more we see our lives as part of God's story and believe that that's truly the path to the good life, the more we're going to be transformed to be like him in the way we respond to life. And as we begin reading through the story of the Bible this week in Genesis chapter 1, we have an awesome opportunity to practice seeing ourselves in God's story each day. So I encourage you, join the reading plan if you haven't started it yet. You can start right off with Genesis 1 this week. And we'll see you again next week. Let's, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the invitation you give us to live life as part of your story. Thank you for the picture you give us of the good life, a more beautiful good life than anything the world can offer us. I pray that we would have the the discipline to read your word consistently, to see ourselves in your word, to read your word properly, that you give us perspective to see the true good life that you offer us and a desire to live our lives in that story, not in the world's competing stories of the good life. Teach us to trust you and obey you and love you and find joy in you this week. In Jesus' name, amen.